Thank you all for reading, but thank you especially to Paula. Who knew that the 18 verses from this week were going to be worse than the 67 from last week? (laughs) When we began looking at the life of Abraham, we said that Abraham and his family would be God's answer to the problem of evil in the world. So now as we we come to his death, I want us to look at how God has begun to deal with evil through the life of Abraham. As we'll see, it's not that Abraham is done away with completely at this this time. But what we see through the life of Abraham are hints at the answer to evil. Hints at what God is doing. Before we jump into that, it is important that we have the issue framed correctly. You know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are are this overview of the history of the world prior to Abraham. In the first two chapters, we see this grand vision of one powerful God forming the earth and all its creatures. All of it with this unique and pervasive goodness. God reveals himself as completely unlimited in his power and his imagination. And he takes delight in all the beauties of the earth, everything he's created. Humans were created in the image of God. To oversee all he created. And to shape creation with the same creativity, the same wisdom with which God initially made it. Their natural multiplication, what God intended for them, would surely lead to cities, nations, the development of governing bodies. Hopefully not lobbyists, but at least governing bodies. All the work necessary for life. Cooking, cleaning, engineering, building, farming, designing. Everything. Everything. And as these things were done in harmony with God and the creation, the world would thrive. The world was designed with this innate ability to respond to the work of its human overseers. It's an amazing thing to watch creation or a creature do what it was meant to do, isn't it? Someone who's called to do something in particular, to see them do that, to see a cook cook, and then to enjoy the benefits of their labor. It's an amazing thing to see something do what it was made to do. And creation would do this as humans nurtured it. Genesis 3, however, then tells uh, the story of the first time that these creational structures get out of whack. Humans were supposed to oversee the creation, but they even were to be led by their creator. But instead of ruling creation and protecting the earth from evil, you see, this this is what Genesis 3 is pointing out. Humans are led by creation... To rebel against their creator. That decision, it's the first human mutiny. It instigated this domino effect. Like dropping a match on the dry forest bed. The rebellion spread through all creation like a wildfire. Humans in the created world were were cursed because of sin. And another important detail. They're exiled. They're sent away from the land of blessing where they enjoyed this regular intimacy, relationship with their their creator. 
As we look at Abraham's death, I think that detail, that exile, sent out of the garden, out of the paradise that God had given to them, that detail is particularly important. Humans' relationship to the land is always a significant factor in the Bible. Genesis 4 through 11 provides a continuing survey of human existence before Abraham, and it gives particular attention to the effects of sin. That first rebellion. And I want to read just a few verses that summarize the human existence during this time. First, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. The earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and indeed it was ruined. For all living creatures on the earth were sinful. I think we know what follows that. God floods the earth. He destroys humans and much of the creation. But he preserves a man named Noah and his family. It's clear when you look at that literature that Noah was to be a second Adam. He had another chance to be like the first man. To start over and to lead his family in the way God intended to lead the earth in the way that God intended it. But a few chapters later, Genesis 11, we see that the human project is still on the wrong track. Genesis 11, Then men said, Let's come, let's build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. Notice the irony, but the Lord came down (laughs) to see the city and the tower that the people had started to build. And the Lord said, if as one people all sharing a common language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. This is literally the height of human pride. But ironically, God has to come down to see the height of it. The author is highlighting for us the foolishness of human pride before this God. But God still, in order to stunt the growth of this cancer of sin, of pride, God scatters humans across the earth. In short, chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis describe human behavior as increasingly destructive toward both each other and the earth itself. Here's the point of this summary. By the time a careful reader has finished the first 11 chapters of Genesis, he is well nigh convinced that mankind left to his own devices is doomed to failure, destruction, and misery. He hopes there might be an alternative, a way of life different from that natural, uninstructed way of mankind, a successful way in which mankind might flourish. And this is where Abraham steps in. To put it more accurately, he's called in from the very midst of that same humanity just described. Abraham doesn't know God or his ways. But God himself, as it were, will take Abraham by the hand. He will serve as his tutor. He will educate him to be a new human being. One who will stand in right relationship to his household, to other people's to the land, and to God. One who will set an example for countless generations who, inspired by his story, will cleave to these righteous ways 
Abraham, you see, is the first part of the answer. He's the clue to the question, how is God dealing with evil? So as we conclude Abraham's life here, how has God begun to deal with the problem of evil? Again, we're not saying that evil is completely gone. But what clues do we find to what God is doing? I think the first way that God is dealing with evil, the first clue we see, and you could say this in a couple of different ways, but God is making genuine, true human beings. You could also say that through Abraham, God is showing us what it means to be a true human being. But this is part of the way that God is dealing with evil. You see, the way of humanity illustrated in Genesis 6 and 11, the things we just read about, it was self-destructive. They were destroying one another. It was full of hatred, violence, and greed. And so God steps in. To show Abraham what it means to live as humans were designed to live. And the largest way that we can describe this, the overarching way that we can describe what it means in the life of Abraham, from the life of Abraham, to live as a human being is Abraham lived by faith. Abraham lived by faith. That's this whole business on the, on the front of the worship guide. That's why uh, Paul in the New Testament references this so much. In Galatians, he says, he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And, and, but I'm not just taking this from other places. That he lived by faith until death is evidenced here by verse 5. It says in verse 5 that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. We just heard this bit about another wife and all these other children that Abraham has had. I'm not going to give that to you just yet, as interesting as it is. But he left everything he owned to Isaac. Abraham continues to trust that God is working through his family and that God has chosen to continue that work through Isaac. Do you remember who Isaac is? He's the child that came so late in his life. The child that Abraham could never have imagined coming. But he gave everything he had to Isaac. In a larger sense that his life is just characterized by faith. Twice he gave up everything to obey the voice of God. The first time was when God called him back in chapter 12. Abraham was 75 years old. And it's the Lord said to him, to Abram, go out from your country, your relatives, your father's household to the land I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you. But the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. And all the families of the earth will bless one another by your name. So Abram left just as the Lord had told him to do. Abraham left financial security, family security, and safety. In his kind of tribal-like world, this amounts to leaving everything. He leaves it all to obey God and to trust God's promises. The second time that Abraham leaves everything was when God told him to sacrifice that child, Isaac. He was the son of his and his wife's old age. He was truly a miracle child. Ironically, he was the promise that God had given to him. 
the central promise. And yet, that is exactly what God asked him to give up. Isn't it interesting? It was the one thing, the largest thing God promised, and it's the one thing, the largest thing God asked him, give it up. Isaac represents everything God has guaranteed to Abraham. Yet Abraham obeyed God. And in this strange way, Isaac was returned to him. It was a test of faith. Could Abraham trust God with literally everything? Could he trust him when he was old as well as when he was young? Now, we don't always think of 75 as young, but this is a difference of about, excuse me, 50 to 60 years in Abraham's life. He, the first time, goodness, he has to give up everything is when he's 75. And then later, nearly 150, and he's challenged again. Can you give up everything? I used to think that these large steps of faith came only when we were young. I looked forward to getting to an age when life was settled, secure. (laughs) And I know many of you are laughing at me because you know it's not realistic. And it's not that I've learned from experience. I'm not older necessarily. But... It seems like the more we learn about Christian faith, the more we read the scriptures, we realize that following God is always about faith. It doesn't matter how old we get. It doesn't matter what stage of life it may be. Following God is always going to be about faith. It's always going to require steps into things that we don't know about. A a, a fog, as we've described it so many times. Do you believe that? That it will always take faith for you to really walk with God. That there isn't going to be this time in life, in the Christian life, that's not what it's about, where life is just settled. (laughs) And it's just easy. Walking with God is always going to require faith. That's what it means for us to live into our true being, our true humanity, is to have faith. It's the same thing we're called to when we decide to follow Jesus. It's Matthew 16. This is the passage you had read. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you holding on to your life in any way? To be a follower of Jesus means you give up your life. This is what Abraham learned about what it meant to be a a true human. He had to trust God and give up his life. But the incredible thing is that in giving up his life, he truly found it. This is really what the point of verse 8 is all about. Verse 8 says in chapter 25 of Genesis, Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man who had lived a full life, and he joined his ancestors. The fullness of his life comes from the fullness of the faith by which he lived it. This, such a summation of life is found with no other person in the Bible. The phrase describes not the longevity of his life, that's already been mentioned, but the quality of his earthly existence. In the end, Abraham has established for future generations what it means to walk with Yahweh. It's a faith that walks in obedience. 
It's a concern for justice, a disposition toward holiness, a way of life guided by awe and reverence before the divine. Do you really believe this? That true life is only found when you live by faith? This is the first clue as to how God is dealing with evil. He's making true humans. And true humans are people who live by faith. We've mentioned it so many times throughout this series, but as we come to the end, it is the most overarching theme that if you were to follow God, you have to take steps of faith. You have to walk in faith. The second way God's dealing with evil is through his ruthless commitment to his promises. Ruthless commitment to his promises. In case you haven't been with us or in case you've forgotten, Abraham was a far from perfect man. There are several cases we could mention. We could mention that right after God called him, he went into Egypt and he gave his wife over to the Pharaoh and put her in his harem so that he could save his own life. Or we could mention that time when his wife suggested, hey, will you sleep with this woman as my surrogate? And he said, sure. That didn't end up well for his family. In fact, it almost ruined his family. Or we could mention the next time that he decided to give up his wife to another king's harem. Abraham was a man of his culture. There were a lot of ways in which Abraham did not understand God and did not understand the ways of God. And despite Abraham's weaknesses as a man, God never abandons him. But he keeps his promises to him. It's testimony to God's commitment to his promises. And that's what a lot of this whole postscript, these 18 verses are all about. It's showing us that God has kept his promises to Abraham. And this is why we have this odd bit about another wife. This is the first fulfilled promise That we come to, Abraham has fathered a multitude of nations. And that whole list that Paula read and did such a wonderful job. The Midianites are are one that comes up several times later in the Old Testament. Moses even marries a Midianite. And that's a convenient way to twist it, isn't it? So that we don't have to be concerned about this wife, this other wife. You know, our options here about Keturah are to see these children as the result of a very reinvigorated old man. Or, and and that makes them essentially like Isaac as miracle children. Do you remember that passage read in Hebrews? It said that Abraham was a man as good as dead when Isaac was born. Well, this is many years later. Or we can look at this as as a postscript, a a filling out of the details on Abraham's life, but not necessarily a chronological comment. Now, where it says that Abraham took another wife in verse 1, that can just as easily be read as had taken. Had taken another wife. And today, at least, I tend to see this as the second option. Now, if you want to talk about it after, that's fine. In other words, Abraham was married to Keturah earlier in his life. He might have been married to Sarah during this time. 
And here's the reason for that. Besides the fact that this would be a miracle and make these children similar to Isaac, the problem with seeing this chronologically is that Abraham lived 15 years after the birth of Jacob and Esau. And that would mean if the author's trying to be chronological here, his death doesn't deserve mention until later in this chapter. So the author's primary concern doesn't seem to be about chronology. It seems to be about narrating a story. If Abraham was married to Keturah while married to Sarah, also, so the big problem with imagining Abraham married to Keturah while married to Sarah is that he had this other woman that he was married to named Hagar, and that caused a huge problem between Abraham and Sarah. We remember that. But here's the thing. Here's what makes them different. Here's what makes Hagar and Keturah different. And... It might sound crude. Hagar was a surrogate. She was to bear a child on behalf of Sarah. Keturah was a second second wife. To put it crude, she was just a concubine, another concubine. Hagar was not just another concubine. She was a picture of faithlessness. Now, this is a reminder to us. Abraham's a man of his culture. Polygamy was, we're not saying that's right or that what Abraham did was okay. But here's, here's the huge reminder that we need to think about. Abraham is the first man in the Bible to receive any instruction from God on marriage. The first man. So I, I think it makes the most sense to see that he was married to Keturah earlier in his life. But the big point that this passage is making is that Abraham is the father of many nations. Many nations. The second promise fulfilled here concerns his death. He is gathered to his fathers at an old age, dying in peace. This is verses 8 and eight and 9. And then he's buried in that field that he bought earlier. The field from Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. East of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Abraham was promised to live to this great old age and to die in peace. But I think there's a larger point here about what God's doing. Do you remember what happened to Adam, the first man? He was kicked out of the land God gave him and he died outside of it. In contrast, Abraham was sent to a land with the promise that God would give it to him. And by the end of his life, he owns a burial plot in that land that God's promised. And when he dies, he's buried in the land that God has given to him. He dies as a man who's at peace with the land. In his time there, he's been a blessing to the land, its people through justice and generosity. In the life of Abraham... We see that God is determined to restore man to his rightful place in the earth. A place where they can live in relationship to God. Where wickedness won't thrive, but the creator and the created will live in this perfect harmony. Abraham lives at peace with God. And he lives inheriting a place, the place that he's promised. Abraham represents a new Adam. And more importantly, he represents God's plan to get the human project back on track. You see, God is committed to his promises. 
And he's committed to restore the earth, all creation, to the way he made it. God blesses Isaac. This is in verse 11. He passes on the blessing to Abraham's son, just as he promised. But oddly enough, this section ends with Ishmael. Of all people, it ends with Ishmael. And here's some, a few hints as to why. God promised, do you remember that God promised that Ishmael would live apart from his brothers? That was in chapter 16. He also promised that he would father 12 princes. And this postscript on Ishmael tells us that God fulfilled his promises to Ishmael. All those names that Paula read are a way of the author telling us God fulfilled every one of his promises to Ishmael. And the point seems to be this. If the Lord fulfilled these kind of minor promises to Ishmael, then surely he will fulfill his greater promises through the greater line of Isaac, the chosen line of Isaac. Seeing the promises to Ishmael fulfilled, the readers meant to look forward to even greater promises to Isaac. We're intended, we, we shouldn't be able to wait to hear what is God going to do through Isaac? How he's going to, he going to carry the promise forward through him? How is God dealing with the problem of evil here? He's making true, genuine humans, people who live by faith. And he's ruthlessly committed to keeping his promises. But the climax of this story goes beyond Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac are hints at the real answer to the problem of evil. But they can only serve as hints. In terms of his humanity, Abraham grows, but he's still a part of this larger system of the world. A system that was wrecked by Adam from the first sin. In terms of God's promises, he received many, but he died before all of them were fulfilled. He focuses the image for us. Shows us a bit of what the answer to the problem of evil will be, but he isn't the answer. The Christian answer to the problem of evil is another man. A man who came from outside the system and made himself a part of the system. The depth of God's commitment to his promise leads him to send his own son. Like Abraham, but even to a greater extent, Jesus lived a life of trust in God. Giving up his very life through sacrificial death. And giving up his life, you know, Abraham gave up his life. But Jesus did what Abraham couldn't do. Jesus received his life back. And resurrection. And he gave life to others. I think this passage sums it up. To anyone who believes. Has faith in him. He gives the right to become a child of God. In other words. He gives the right to become a real human being. Instead of being ruled by creation like Adam was, or allowing evil to earn a place in God's world like Adam did, Jesus rules creation. He conquers evil. He tells the stormy water to be still, and to those with demons, to those with burdens, He heals them. He restores them, humanity, to the earth. Abraham died waiting on the promises. And Jesus' death and resurrection, he fulfills the promise. 
We, like Abraham, we live by faith. We wait for the day that all will be well. And every matter of things will be well. Friend, do you you have faith? The world, we still experience the evil that Abraham experienced. Do you have faith that God is redeeming the world? That he's committed to his promises? And do you have faith, like Abraham, to take a step of faith? To walk in obedience to God? And trust that God is making all things new. Let's pray.